Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. You really want to focus on acquisitions and capital. Capital's big. You want to be talking with investors and trying to grow your investor base, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day. There's something you could do, whether it's online, meetings, conferences. you got to grow that investor base because without your investors, you can't buy. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to another episode of Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, my guest is Max Sharkansky. He's the co-founder and managing partner who oversees all aspects of acquisition, disposition, and property analysis for Tryon Properties. Since the firm's founding in, in 2005, Max has led the acquisition, renovation, and disposition of more than $1.2 billion in mismanaged, distressed, or undervalued multifamily assets, leading to an IRR in excess of 25%. Tryon currently has over a billion dollars in assets and approximately 5,000 units in the portfolio. So Max, thanks for coming on today. We're uh, excited to learn from you. It sounds like you guys have grown quite the portfolio. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been, um, you know, it's been a long ride and uh, just like everybody else, you do it brick by brick. Yeah, that's right. I think that's a tough lesson sometimes, but uh, just yep. one, one foot in front of the other, right? And all of a sudden you're at a over a billion dollars in assets under management. So yeah, yeah excited to, I was, to hear your story and how you get here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we bought, you know, I'm born and raised in LA. I was brokering straight out of college. I worked at Marcus and Millichap and I was brokering multifamily in the San Fernando Valley. So naturally my partner and I, when we decided that we wanted to be on the buy side, we started buying multifamily in San Fernando Valley. So our first purchase was a 12 unit building in Sun Valley. Then we bought a... 30, 40 unit building in Glendale, California. And from there just kept going. And was that in 2005? That was in 05. So I was still at Marcus. He was still at HFF, which is now JLL. Uh, we bought two properties in Q4 2005, uh, the two that I just mentioned and loved it. And, you know, realize, you know, we realized that that's what we wanted to be doing. That was kind of the moment where we said, okay, all of our clients, are the ones making a lot of money. Like, you know, these fees are great and you can make a great career as a broker, but it just seemed like the buy side is really where you can build re real wealth. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so we wanted to go to the buy side and we kept buying into 06 and then end of 06, we left our shops and opened up our own company. Um, bought through the last cycle, built up a small portfolio. Uh, we sold most of it in 2008. We were fortunate to have good timing prior to the crash. Oh, had wow. a couple properties. Yeah. Uh, we kind of saw the writing on the wall. We had a lot of friends in finance, saw what was happening in the capital markets. Uh, unlike what's happening right now where it's going real fast. Yeah. Back then, it was kind of a slow slog. Like, so the would you first say subprime lenders started folding in 07. Okay, so you kind of, you saw it coming. You saw the subprime lenders start to fold and you, you said, okay, there's something bigger happening here and, and we need to exit and get into cash. Correct. So we exited, we started selling everything in 2008. Um, we sold almost our entire portfolio. We had a couple properties trickle into the fourth quarter of 2009. Uh, we took a small loss on one of them. No investors were harmed. My partner and I just took the loss. And the other property, we actually sold at a profit, believe it or not, because the NOI had increased so much. So sure. we sold that one at a profit and we were done. Um, as we were selling in 0809, uh, in 08, as we were selling, we changed our strategy from targeting value-add multifamily to targeting non-performing debt secured by multifamily and multifamily REO. And it took us about a year for our first closing. We were a touch early because the bid-ask spread was just so massive. You couldn't make mm -hmm. a deal work. Mm -hmm. Banks wanted to sell their loans at 95 cents on the dollar. We were trying to buy them at half that. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, once the shit really hit the fan, pardon my French, uh, we started buying loans at 65 cents, 75 cents on the dollar. And then the market kind of bottomed out and then that improved. We paid 75, 85 cents. We bought some at par. Yeah. Um, and then, so what, uh, so just REOs. before, before we get too far down the path, I, yeah, I, sorry, I want to, no, that's fine. I just, there's a lot to unpack and I want to make sure that we, we capture all these little nuggets. Cause I think it's interesting to, to hear kind of how you guys altered strategy during the downturn. And it seems like you were able to do that pretty effectively. So mm -hmm. you, so you sell out in, in 2008 into 2009. And then what was it that, I guess you, so you're there, you're in cash. What was it that said, okay, we need to, we need to change our strategy. Uh, was it just, was it, you were familiar enough with the market to know that this other strategy existed? Did you have to, were you sitting there with cash and saying, well, we got to do something. So I got to go out and find another way, another way to operate or something else to go after. I mean, what was kind of that turning point? So we weren't sitting in cash really very long because we sold our last couple assets in Q one Q2 2009 and mm -hmm. we purchased our first few notes in Q3 like end of Q2 early Q3 2009 yeah. so we were only in cash for about four or five months and so what was it that made you what was it made you decide that you were going to go buy debt instead of instead of continue to buy properties because our perspective was these owners aren't really owners they're they're zombie owners and their properties are underwater. So we're going to go to who the real equity is. And the real equity is with the credit. Mm. And we started calling banks and servicers. And again, we were a little bit early because we were doing it in 2008. Yep. But by the time we were into 2009, groups started to transact. Banks started to transact. Uh, properties started to go back. And we were able to have a pretty active downturn. We bought about 20 deals 
in 2009, 10, 11, 12, and not a single one was from a private organization or individual. Everything was from lenders, servicers, uh, REO and NPL. Yeah. Wow. So you were able to just, I think, smartly go directly to the banks. The banks at, at first had not felt enough pain yet right? They hadn't seen these start to come back and land on their balance sheets. And so you were able to build those relationships though. You saw the writing on the wall again, you were ahead of the game. And so when it was time, you guys were there and you're well poised and you were able to say, like you said, pick up things at, what do you say? 50 cents, 60 cents on the dollar, uh, even at, at some point. So, I mean, that, that's incredible. I'm sure that you, you were able to create a ton of wealth in that strategy. So, so take us through, so you acquire, kind of 20 properties just in a couple of years, it sounds like. And then, yeah. And then coming out of the downturn, tell, tell us the timing again, what was the writing on the wall? You started to see that said, okay, now it's time to um, it's time to exit. And, and again, alter our strategy. There was, there wasn't anything left to buy. The distress had cleared the market at that point. So we bought our last few notes in Q3 2012, and we picked off our last REO Q1 2013, and that's it. That was done. Uh, the GFC gotcha. was over, so there wasn't anything left to buy, so we went back to the value-add business, and uh, my joke internally was, it's not nearly as profitable as NPLs and REOs, but it feels so much better. <laughs> so <laughs> we were happy to get back into the value added business um, and sure. we've been doing it ever since. So we've built so, a portfolio now. Uh, right now, as we sit here today, we're about 1.1 billion AUM. Um, we've got 4,000 and change units in portfolio and we've got 2,000 units under contract. So by July 1, we'll have a, somewhere between six and six and a half thousand units in portfolio. Wow, that's awesome. So you're going to grow another 50% here in, in no time. Yeah. So what when we were when you were back, uh, you're doing those REO deals. I'm just curious, who was who was funding those deals for you guys? You clearly had to had to find people to to pay for those. I mean, who how are you convincing people that real estate and, and these were still the right deals to do uh, in the middle of the downturn? That's a great question. So you know, we had, we were a young group. We had a very small stable of investors. We had some of our own cash and we would go through these as fast as possible so that we could recycle and repatriate the capital. Uh, and that's it. That was the whole strategy. And that's what we were doing while we were growing our investor base. So back then, you know, we had five to 20 investors, then 25, then 30. And now we have about a thousand and growing. Yeah, that's awesome. So you were able to convince a small enough group, maybe friends and family that like, even though with everything that's going around, like this is, this is still a good idea. This is the right place to be. You're able to sell them or buy them at a discount values will come back. So that's awesome. So now you guys, so fast forwarding, we're at, you know, a billion in assets under management. You guys are about to, to grow another 50% here. So how have, as you've scaled I mean, you've scaled so much. I mean, you've had a, a decade plus number of years to do that. But as you've scaled, I mean, what what are those big pivot points that that you've experienced? Like, I mean, have there been some points where, I mean, I think clearly kind of your altering strategy, but coming out of the downturn, moving back into value add, it sounds like that's still where you are. But as you've hit those different growth points, I mean, how, how have you grown the business and what have those trigger points be to say, okay, now we need to 
we need to stop, we need to operate at, at a different level, right? You can't operate a thousand units like you are 500 as you can a thousand, 2000, et cetera. So kind of tell us what that growth path looked like. It's evergreen, right? So we're a vertical company. Uh, we do everything in house, property management, project management. We have a lot of our own crew in house on the West coast, um, accounting, HR kind of sorta, uh, acquisitions, of course, admin. So everything's in house. Most of our peers outsource, we insource. Mm -hmm. um, that said, that's an instrumental part of your growth. And that's something that, you know, as an executive, you're constantly thinking about which pieces do we need to supplement? Um, where do we need to hire a new regional? How do we need to grow our accounting staff based on the size of our portfolio? So the, that, that is evergreen, um, especially when you're insourcing. You're just constantly adding to the team. So like our, you know, I would wager for a group our size, we've got one of the largest office spaces and corporate teams in the industry, um, you know, for a 5,000-ish unit group. We've got 10,000 square feet in LA, three and a half thousand square feet in Miami. Uh, our corporate employee count is probably around 40 right now. Plus we have a mortgage brokerage shop, uh, which we started up back in 06 when we left our shop. So that's got about 10 people in it. So 50 people or so in the corporate offices, another 40 to 50 boots on the ground. So you're constantly, and that's constantly going up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are, I guess for, for people that are kind of starting out or maybe have maybe have a few properties, I mean, what are, what's some advice you would give as far as if they're, they're looking to take that, that big growth point, they're looking to go from maybe, you know, a hundred to a thousand or from a couple hundred. I mean, where, where should they start first? Duplex, triplex, fourplex depends on, I would say it depends on their money, depends on their experience. Um, if it's a real estate professional, you know, like a young associate who worked for a company like ours, they could probably start a little bit further ahead, a little bit larger. They're probably more capable of raising capital, you know, kind of like my, my partner and I started out, he was at HFF. I was at Marcus. Mm -hmm. People really trusted us. Um, we had been successful in those positions. So we were able to buy a few hundred units of SoCal real estate pretty quickly. And that time, you know, for a couple of guys in their mid to late twenties, that was a lot. Um, and yeah. somebody who doesn't really have any real estate experience, um, completely unrelated, I would probably start a lot smaller. I mean, more for the folks that are, you know, have some experience, maybe they've got 100 units under their belt, but they're looking to, to get to 1000. You know, how does that, okay, where does that person focus? Again, going back to the insourcing versus outsourcing. So if they are outsourcing, which a lot of people do, I recognize that. Um, you really want to focus on acquisitions and capital. Capital's big. You want to be talking with investors and trying to grow your investor base, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day. Uh, there's something you could do, whether it's online meetings, conferences, you got to grow that investor base because without your investors, you can't buy. Mm -hmm. And without real estate, you're not going to have anything for them to invest in. So it's a balance and you have to work that balance. And I would concentrate on spending them majority of your time on those two things early on in your career. Yeah, I think that that's great advice. So now that you guys have grown out the, the you've grown out the base, you've got a sizable portfolio. Um, I know now you've, you're, you're in LA, you're also in, in Miami. What was the, what was the shift from California to Florida or to move in, into Florida? Is that market driven? Is that 
more just personal lifestyle preference? That's a great question. It's a little bit market driven. It's more expansion and diversification from the West Coast. Mm -hmm. um, my partner and I decided to make this move in summer 2020. Um, there was a lot going on in California and with COVID and um, the riots. And it just, you know, it just didn't seem like there was an end in sight. Mm -hmm. So, and we, you know, what we said was, look what happened in New York. They passed that draconian vacancy control law. And a lot of groups like ours who are heavily concentrated in New York, they got wiped out. Their equity got wiped out. Property values went down by 25% plus, mm -hmm. which means you're, get, you're very close to getting into the debt and your equity is gone. So we said, hey, let's not get wiped out. All right. So we decided to start an office in Miami in the Southeast. The Southeast was very high growth. And we always wanted to be in this part of the country. And you can't cover it from the West Coast. It's too far. You can't fly cross country to do a property tour in Georgia or Florida or the Carolinas. Brokers won't take you seriously. Mm -hmm. So I moved here with my family and opened up an office, hired a few people. Um, and we're off to the races. Uh, we've already bought a few hundred million dollars of real estate with another hundred plus in contract and um, it's going great. That's awesome. So how do, how do you, because you guys do everything in house, how do you bring that model across the country and, and make sure that you're able to maintain just the, the same level of delivery, the same quality? We just hired people here. We didn't move anybody yet. We've got a couple of people that are interested in coming here, but uh, we hired everybody from scratch, hired a fantastic operations person named Matt. Um, he's done a fantastic job. Uh, we hired him, bought our first property, then our second, then our third, fourth, fifth, and uh, he's overseeing the portfolio. And we're now hiring an associate for him. And once, you know, as we continue to scale, we'll have to hire regional managers. And that's kind of the drill. Gotcha. What markets are you guys focused on? You said Southeast. Is it just throughout the Sun Belt? Florida, Georgia, Carolinas. Um, we've been trying to enter Dallas, but that's out of the LA office. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, very good. Yeah, all really high growth markets. And it makes a ton of sense. So as you guys have, you've got two locations now. You guys, you guys obviously have, have a great um, organization. Curious now that you've been doing this for, about 17, maybe going on 18 years. Yeah, you know, I'm sure you've learned a lot uh, throughout throughout your time. What are some things that you can share with our listeners to, to help them, you know, maybe avoid some of those potholes along the way? What, what are some of the big lessons learned? Um, I think a big lesson, and I don't know that we've necessarily made this mistake, but we've seen countless other people make this mistake is debt. Be very careful with how you leverage. Um, don't over leverage because when times get tough, it's not real estate that kills people. It's debt that kills people. And that is the single bullet that can take down any real estate entrepreneur from the most basic to the most institutional. So be very careful how you leverage. And what is like when you when you say be careful? I mean, what what does that look like? Like, what is there an LTV that you guys target? Is there a certain debt coverage? I mean, how do you when you're approaching debt for one of your deals? How do you look at things? Um, I think LT. Look, there are a few tests, right? I think we look at it almost from the shoes of a lender. So, what's our LTV test? What's our DSCR test? Um, 
floating fixed, all these things, right? So LTV, we're typically capping at about 75% uh, of cost on a purchase, uh, but we're, that's not average, right? So average, we're right around 70 and topping off at 75. We occasionally go a little higher up the stack if it's the right opportunity, but not often. Um, DSCRs, uh, we don't mind a negative DSCR coming out of the gates. Uh, we haven't had that in a long time because of how low rates have been. Um, it looks like that's going to happen now over the next 12 to 18 months at least. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have a little bit of negative cash flow coming out of the gates, but you want to build a strong interest reserve to make sure that you have enough capital to pay down that debt as you do your value add program. Um, if your rate interest rate is floating, uh, where if you're borrowing bridge and acquisitions and most of us in the space are borrowing floating rate debt, you want to make sure to either buy an interest rate cap or a swap. And if you're not doing that, you probably want to go a little bit lower leverage. Like we're looking at, we've got a few, we've got five properties in contract right now. Mm-hmm. And on some of them, we're looking at about 70, 75% loan to cost where we're buying rate caps or swaps. We've got one interesting one where we've got a very compelling quote from a lender that's 60% loan to cost at only 150 over the spread, of 150 over the index. So that's pretty compelling. You don't need to buy an interest rate cap because you're so low leverage and you have such a low spread. Right. So on something like, you know, on something like that, even if rates go up 400 basis points, your, your rate's still only going to be 6.5% and you probably will still be cash flow positive. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that is compelling. What, where do you find uh, that kind of debt? Relationships. Um, we have a mortgage brokerage company in-house. When my partner and I left uh, in 06, he was a very active mortgage broker. And he, while I was looking for properties and handling some of the operations, he was continuing to work his book of business to bring in fee income to keep the lights on. And we grew that business out. We've got about 10 guys in that business. Uh, and we do our own in-house mortgage banking. So we found this group through a relationship of ours. They were historically a small balance Fannie Freddie lender and they got bought out by a larger bank. And this is a program that that bank has on its books. It's a relationship business. Real estate is a relationship business. So yep. You know, anybody out there who's starting out, who's young, I would highly recommend doing as much networking as possible, getting out there, pounding the pavement. Uh, You really got to be on the front lines to be successful in this business. Yeah, I I think that's a great story to hear that, you know, because I think if you just go the, if you just go the normal route and you you don't really build deep relationships, you're going to get kind of the standard market rate debt, whatever's available, kind of the the first thing that they're going to give you where you guys are, have built up this business, you build up your relationships, you're able to go deeper in some of these and you're able to find some, some unique opportunities, even some unique types of debt that maybe can give you guys an advantage. And so I think that that is a great lesson, a uh, great lesson for everybody to learn. So, and because you've brought, so you think having that brokerage business in-house really gives you kind of a, a unique insight into the debt side of things, it sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And for anybody who doesn't do that, which is 99% of people out there, I would definitely recommend hiring a mortgage broker on pretty much every deal you're doing because the capital markets are ever changing. 
And if there's one thing constant in the capital markets is change. Uh, so that, you know, that group that you do two, three, four loans with over a period of five, six months, nine months, things are going to change. And you might then want to work with somebody else based on where interest rates are and allocations are. And again, it's ever changing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what, like, ideally, I mean, like, as you said, there, there's a lot in flux right now. And I agree with you. I think debt is one of the most important things and probably one of, one of often the, it's probably taken for granted as it's just kind of there. And people probably don't think about it as creatively as you do. So as, as you guys are looking at, at debt now, I mean, what type of, what type of products are you using? What are you using to finance? I think you, you mentioned bridge, uh, obviously versus others, but I mean, how are you approaching that, that debt structure right now? That's a great question. So let's just take the last few years. During COVID, we were primarily borrowing agency debt with a little bit of bridge. And early 2021, rates came in, I'm sorry, cap rates came in so much that you couldn't really get any meaningful proceeds mm-hmm. going to the agencies and getting something based on in-place and operating income. So we went pretty much 100% bridge. Um, we closed our last couple deals with the agencies in uh, Q1 2021. And then from there, it was just all bridge. And we've done 100% bridge over the last year. And it looks like it's going to continue to be that uh, at least for the next six to nine months. Um, Refis will look a little bit different. Refis will probably be a combination of agencies and banks. Mm -hmm. So, and for folks that that aren't as experienced, I mean, when you say bridge, just quickly explain you know, what, what kind of debt product is that? Like, what are the dynamics of a bridge? So just high level, philosophically, you want your debt to match your business plan, right? So when you buy a property, you're going to renovate it. You're going to increase the NOI. You're going to be doing all these things the first 18 to 24 months, and you need the debt to match that what your plan is, right? So you go get bridge debt. And what that is, is it's a loan that's based on not just your in-place NOI, but and your in-place value, but where you're going to be taking NOI and what the value will be at that point. So the lender will fund a little bit more in place and they're going to fund your CapEx. So you execute on your renovation plan, business plan, and then somewhere between month 18 and 24, which is usually where it lands for us, we refinance it with what's called a perm or a mini perm, where you go to the banks or you go to the agencies and they give you a five-year fixed rate loan or longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no, I appreciate that, that explanation. So one thing that, that I think is great about your team and um, and about you guys is, is you guys have stayed active no matter the market conditions, right? You've adapted to the market a few times, uh, some huge shifts, right? And, and others, just, just small ones, maybe just the type of debt you're using, right? But you, you've stayed nimble and, and you're all, it seems like you're always looking for what is the most advantageous route and what, which route fits the market at that time. So I'm, I'm curious of, of your thoughts because I hear this a lot right now. You said cap rates have come in a lot, a lot, right? A lot of people I talk to say, you know, I'm not investing right now just because I can't, I can't pay those prices. I, I never would buy a, a property at X cap rate, you know, whatever it is. 
mean, what do you, what do you say to those people? Cause clearly you guys have been very active and still having a ton of success. I would say that depends on your model, right? So for us, we're heavy value add. We don't care about in place cap rate. Um, one, two, three, we don't really care. So we're solving to a return on cost. What is our pro forma cap rate after we spend money on our CapEx? Um, Pre-COVID, we were always hovering somewhere around five and a half to six untrend. What that means is before you're calculating any growth, rent growth, right? On today's rents. So if you snap your fingers, you mark all the rents to market, you do all your CapEx, what is your cap rate? Um, now, you know, since COVID the last year, a year and a half or so, we're solving to about a five untrended and untrended return on cost really is our most important net metric. Mm. That's the North star. And because anybody can solve to a four, two, four, five, and then just use some crazy rent growth assumptions to get to a five or five and a quarter. Um, we want to be at a five just in case, you know, I mean, it looks like the Fed is about to start a lot of tightening and that's going to pull back a little bit on growth. Yep. So you got to think about that, right? So again, we do think there's going to be growth. We're in a hyper inflationary environment. Um, the inflation report came out this morning and it's eight and a half percent. So clearly rents are only going in one direction. Nonetheless, we want to have a cushion of safety, right? So we're solving to about a five. Gotcha. So I, I want to revisit this because I love little little nuggets like this uh, when the audience gets these. So you guys are using, you're really looking at that return on cost as your, and what do you call it? The untrended return on cost that you guys are tracking to. And, and really does that, that boils into like down to like a year two NOI is what you're looking at from a cap rate standpoint? The untrended return on cost would be if you were to mark to market today. Okay. Right? So what if you mark all the rents to market today, spend all of your CapEx today, what is your return on cost gonna be? Then you have a trend of return on cost where right now we're underwriting to about 4% year over year rent growth when it's obviously much, much higher than that. Yep. Uh, given what's going on in the country, macro, um, and especially in the markets where we're buying, we typically buy in very high growth markets, right? So. We're in Miami, Orlando, Atlanta, uh, West Coast. We're in, in Sacramento, Portland. We're in the mountain states. So very high yep. growth market, right? We're seeing yep. 10, 15, 20% year over year rent growth. But yep. we're, we're marking to a four. Again, we want to have that cushion. Right, right. You're building in downside protection. Correct. Right? Just critical, critical. I think hopefully- If you protect the downside, the upside will take care of itself. Correct. I love that. Yeah, hopefully nobody out there is underwriting the eight or 10% rent growth. We, we want to they are. maintain conservative conservatism, <laughs> no, but that's the message on this Unfortunately, show. Unfortunately, they are. Conservatism. Um, so, no, I just, I want to hit on that one more time because I, I love that. So the untrended return on cost, and then, and then you're, you're also tracking to the trended return, but that that's projecting the rent growth. So you, when you, and when you say mark to market, you're burning off that loss to lease on the rent roll essentially move all the rents to market right now? Is that effectively how you're doing that? Well, we're looking at that. We, we want to know what that number is, uh, but we're also doing post-renovation, right? Lost to lease wouldn't in include the renos. Lost okay. to lease would mark your classics to classic, your, po your partials to partials, whatever folds there are to folds. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, assuming we spend all of the money, yeah. then 
post-renovation, what's the market market? So you are assuming that bump on renovations, but then you're saying, okay, we get that rent bump on renovations because we've already, we've renovated, right? We've moved those up to the market. And then you're saying baking all that cost in, what does that now look like? I gotcha. That's it. Gotcha. That's correct. Perfect. No, I love that. And I think that's something that folks should, um, definitely make sure that, that they're underwriting too. I don't think that's a, that is a metric that's on a lot of the common underwriting worksheets you see out there, but I think that's something that, that folks should be looking to add in. And again, something besides just a, an IRR, which is highly subjective and, and based off, you know, what's going to happen in a crystal ball in, in five years from now. So I love hearing concrete yeah. metrics like that. Yep. Awesome, Max. Well, um, Listen, I'd love to hear, I mean, you, you were clearly well tuned into what's happening in the real estate market and the capital markets. I mean, where, where do you think that we go over the next, I mean, who knows, however far out your crystal ball looks. I mean, where do you think things trend as far as interest rates over, over the next year? Where do you think property values uh, continue to go? What, what's kind of your synopsis as you're looking out? Um. I think interest rates are going to go up quite a bit. I think they'll probably go up a few hundred basis points on the short term. So you'll see, but I think at the same time, you'll see spreads come in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, right now we're borrowing, depending on the loan to value, loan to cost, high twos to mid three spread over SOFR. So if SOFR goes up to 300 basis points, it puts you at a six. Um, Mortgage rates probably won't go up. When I say mortgage rates, I mean like, you know, more long-term permanent type financing. Yep. So that's probably going to be in the fives. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of inflation and a tremendous amount of rent growth. And for that reason, cap rates won't blow out as much as you would think they would blow out based mm -hmm. on interest rates. So I think you still will be seeing people pay a lot of, you know, for something cap rates for in an interest rate environment that's in five and a half to six percent and which seems like a head scratcher but the inflation will get that four and a half cap five cap to six and a half cap in a matter of two to two to three years right so i guess as uh, long as you're underwriting that crazy rent growth right but if you're only underwriting right. three four percent how does that ever pencil out you just have to start to I guess take it just depends how you underwrite it just depends yeah. how you underwrite right yeah, sure, sure. And, and, and I mean, I, I agree with you in a lot of the, the same ways. I think we're going to see that that crazy rent growth continue. I mean, I think, so we're in different markets. I'm in the Midwest. I think one of the, the differences that we see in the Midwest is still, too, just this relatively um, affordable rents. I mean, when we're looking at properties, you know, I mean, we're, a property we're looking at right now, rents are about 19% of um of the, the median income. And so you look at that and you say, there's still substantial room to grow, especially when you start to think relative to markets in the Southeast and in the West. And I think there's just a, you see these opportunities where rents have lagged for a long time. And with this inflation, I think, I think you start to see those grow, but I think, I think that's the struggle right now is maintaining that conservatism um, even in an environment where, where things are just going up and down and around and kind of every which way, just being able to hold steady remain conservative. I think that that's the right message to deliver. Yep. Absolutely. Be careful, awesome. protect yeah. the downside. Well, this is, this is a unique time, right? I think, I think like you said, you should stay active, 
but you got to be careful and you got to think, I think now more than ever about the downside, right? So I love what you guys are doing as far as maintaining your conservatism on debt and in your underwriting. So Thank Max, you. as we, yeah. So as, as we wrap things up, I want to take you through our keys to success round. There's four questions I want to ask you. The first one is put yourself in one of your investor's shoes. If you, know, you were going to invest money with someone else and you could only ask them one question, what would that one question be? If they, I'm sorry, if they were going to ask a question or if, if you were going invest to invest your money with someone else and you can only sponsor. ask that person one question. Yeah. Another sponsor. What's one question would you ask them? What are your worst deals? What were your worst deals? And how did you behave with your investors during those deals? Yeah, I think I think because I and I yeah because we've yeah, had one ahead. we've had one loss over the past call it ten years and my partner and I wrote a very large check, seven figures, to protect as much of the investor loss as possible. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I think that that's your responsibility, right? I think as as a as a good sponsor, it's to to bring the deal in or or bear uh, most of the burden uh, of the loss. So. I think that's, uh, I, I'm sure you, you created a, a lot of investor, uh, just a lot of trust in doing that. And I bet, I bet a lot of those investors came back, even though you may have a loss on that one because it showed, yep, it showed exactly. the integrity you guys had. Yeah. It, they it's have. a long-term game, right? They have come back. Yeah. Very cool. So what are you most proud of in your career? I am most proud of the amount of people that we've been able to employ, the jobs created, the culture that we've been able to build here. It's just amazing. And I'm very proud of um, the amount of wealth we've been able to create for others, uh, which, you know, that's how you go from four investors to a thousand. And when, when, you, when you make people money, work travels very fast. Mm -hmm. So we're very, very proud of that. Yeah, it, incredible business you guys have built. Thank what you. is a book everybody should read? I think it depends on the topic. Um, I recently read Atomic Habits, which I really liked. So for, you know, productivity slash self-help, I really liked that book. I thought it was amazing. Uh, if you want to read a good real estate book on, you know, kind of the nuts and bolts of real estate, I like the real estate game. I like um, Sam Zell's book, Am I Being Too Subtle? I like this Steve Schwartzman book. I forget what it's called, but fantastic. Awesome. Those are all good gems. We'll make sure those are all linked at the bottom. And last question, Max, what is your number one key to success? Um, number one, well, I would say just you get out of it what you put into it. So a tremendous amount of putting into it, hard work, uh, sound body, sound mind, make sure you're not working 24 hours a day, but you do have some time to go to the gym um, do whatever sport you like, exercise you like, and make sure you're working on your health. Health does come first. So, uh, sound body, sound mind. I love that advice. That's been a big focus of mine this year is creating space to, to do those things and keep healthy, you know, 
put yourself first in, in some areas. And, and I agree that is this, the key to longevity. And for somebody that's done it for, for as long as you have and, and had that longevity been through different market cycles, I'm, I'm sure that's a, a plays a huge part in your, your yep. staying power. Definitely. Definitely. Awesome. Well, guys, Max Shurkansky from Tryon Properties. Max, thank you so much for, for coming today. If folks want to learn more about you and, and what you guys are working on, how can they reach you? Thanks, Kent. Uh, our property, I'm sorry, our uh, website is tryonproperties.com. T-R-I-O-N, like Nancy, properties.com. My email is max at tryonproperties.com. Um, so yeah, feel free to shoot us an email and I can connect you with our IR team if you're interested in investing and uh, feel free to browse the site online. You can open an account, see what offerings we currently have. Very cool. Well, we'll make sure that that's all listed below so that folks can, can reach out to you, Max. And once again, thank you for coming on and sharing so much value with our listeners and hope you have a great rest of the day. You too. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.